0: Welcome to the Health Leader Forge. My name is Mark Bonica. I'm a professor here at the University of New Hampshire in the Department of Health Management and Policy. And this month, I'm joined by two of our students here in the department. If you guys would like to introduce yourselves.
1: My name's Shayna Murphy. I'm a senior in the Health Management and Policy Program here at UNH, and I'm from Dover, New Hampshire. I'm Bridget Carrier. I'm a junior here at the University in the Health Management Policy Program, and I'm from Presque Isle, Maine.
0: Great. Who'd you guys talk to?
1: So we talked to Steve Kasabian, who's the Chief Administrative Officer over at Maine Medical Partners.
0: All right, and what did you guys learn from uh, your conversation with Steve?
1: So I've had the
2: opportunity to intern at Maine Medical Partners, and so I've gotten to know Steve over the last couple years. He's an alumni from our program, And it's been very cool to see how he's grown over the last several years and the path he's taken, doing various things in consulting, and taking this role as a chief administrative
1: officer. So I also had the opportunity to do my internship at Maine Medical Partners, and I had been able to meet with Steve uh, before doing the interview. And I really liked being able to see his path. Some executives now have started in different careers, and then found their way into healthcare, where Steve, coming from our program, went right into healthcare. So being a senior and going out into the workforce soon, it was nice seeing someone with a path throughout the healthcare industry.
0: Great. I want to say thanks to the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives for their continuing sponsorship of our program here. And if you are listening to this podcast, would you please take a moment to leave feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you are listening to this podcast? It really helps other people find us. And now let me turn you over to Shana and Bridget, who are interviewing Steve Kasabian.
1: Welcome to the Forge, Steve.
3: Good afternoon. Happy to be here.
1: You attended the University of New Hampshire and obtained a Bachelor of Science in Health Administration and Planning, which is now Health Management and Policy.
3: Why did you choose UNH and when did you know what you wanted to study? Okay. Well, I chose UNH. I grew up in Dover, New Hampshire. Uh, my dad went to UNH, so I had a, a sort of intention from the beginning to want to go to school where he did. I did not know what I wanted to be when I grew up, so I started as an engineer, mechanical engineer, and spent actually three years in mechanical engineering before changing my major to Health, man, to a health Administration and Planning, as it was named back then. So that was kind of the track, and then the rest of it is history.
1: So what internship experiences did you have at UNH, and how did it affect your career? Um,
3: a lot. So I, as I look back as to you know how I got here and the paths that got created for me, um, my internship was actually at Exeter Hospital, and that vintage of time, that was a, a coveted internship. It just was one of the ones folks wanted. And I matched up well with the assistant administrator at the time, probably be called a COO today. Tom Sager was his name. And it was really that, a combination of time I spent with Tom and then subsequently time that I was afforded to work in their business office that following summer. That led me to have a bunch of experiences and meet people that later on were a series of handoffs in my, in my career, and so it really genuinely started at Exeter Hospital, um, and just sort of grew from there.
1: So many of your colleagues in similar positions had more untraditional roots into the healthcare industry. What influenced you to pursue a direct path into health administration instead of a more general business administration degree?
3: Um, so, you know, transparency is my middle name, and we'll use that word a lot as we go through this, go through this series of questions. The, at the time that I was looking to make a change from engineering to something, something not defined, um, I did what all good sons would do. I called up my mother, and I said, I've got to change my major. You know me best. What should I do? And my dad is a dentist, was a practicing dentist at the time, so I grew up in a professional kind of... Or career or orientation with a lot of doctors and dentists around, it seemed, all the time. But uh, she pointed me at a healthcare administration because the, the administrator of Wentworth Douglas Hospital had just had an appointment with my dad and was walking out the door and she said, gee, you know, that seems like a pretty good career. And <laughs> it was literally that little kick that at least started me down a path of having a conversation or two about what is this thing called healthcare administration. So I, I wish it were uh, more intriguing than that, but it isn't.
2: <laughs> After graduating in 1981, you obtained a job at Goodall Hospital as an office manager. Tell us about Goodall Hospital and what your responsibilities were there. Yeah.
3: So Goodall is, uh, is was the classic small community hospital. Uh, servicing the needs of a population. I think at the time, it probably didn't reach 20,000 people. It's like 14,000 somewhat people. And very, very old hospital with a lot of roots in the community and a lot of pride in delivering healthcare there. I happened to know the CFO from Exeter Hospital. And Uh, had spent that time working in the business office in Exeter, so afforded the opportunity to at least come talk to them about an open position. And When I got that position, it put me responsible for the billing office, registration, admitting, the emergency room registration, information systems, and the switchboard. And looking back on it, I always thought they were nuts to give this kid that much responsibility, but they did. So I had a pretty broad, you know, array of responsibilities. It was a small hospital. I, I'm not going to remember how many beds at that point in time. I think it was a 40- or 50-bed hospital. So not a big enterprise, but looked big to me coming, to, coming into it. So,
2: How did your experience at UNH prepare you to be in a management role directly out of college?
3: Um... So that it, this is one of the, the harder questions because um, the the honest answer is I don't I don't know that it directly does to me the answer lies in the experiences you get afforded in internships give you that exposure so a little bit of this is things you see and do as an intern people you meet as an intern uh, all influence sort of how you view the world as a manager I'm I, I took a huge number of cues from Tom Sager, God rest his soul, Tom away. but his style I wanted to emulate, and he and I were similar in personality, but I watched him navigate Exeter Hospital and know everyone and talk to everyone, and I said, that's what I want to do, that's how I'm going to you know, lead my life in, in, in this career, and so... I feel like it, while the classroom doesn't necessarily teach you to be a manager, you got to live that, it sets you up to sort of see the people who do it well, or at least from my perception, we're doing it well, and created sort of a springboard for me to say, okay, I'm a, I am watch, I see, I do. So um, that's, 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 that's how I would connect the two.
2: What was it like having so much responsibility in the first step of your
3: career? Um... I was not smart enough to know that I was, had so much responsibility <laughs> that I shouldn't have. Um, it was all new to me, and I, you know, again, I was more about people. I continue to be about people in relationships, so I was afforded an opportunity to learn this stuff. I, you know, what did I know about switchboards or data processing or those sorts of things? Really, very little. We didn't even have PCs on campus when I went to school, so you can imagine, you know, the leap here, but, um, you know, re- reflecting back on it, I everyone that's ever asked me about that, I say, I, I can't believe they let me, you know, gave me the keys to that thing at, at the age that I was, but, um, you know, I spent three years and they didn't kick me out, so I was doing a couple of things right, and it was truly foundational to everything that I know how to do, and again, a key component of my sort of career path. In
2: 1992, you became the practice administrator of four gynecological associates in South Portland. What pushed you to go back into direct practice management?
3: Um, That was an opportunity for me to, what I had learned, so I'll back up, what I had learned when we started the consulting practice for physicians was that unlike everything else we consulted in for the hospitals... This was real money because it was turning into real paychecks for individuals, doctors. And uh, it was actually Bill Karen because when he was running the consulting group, who said, Steve, this is different. When you round, make a rounding adjustment on a pro forma or a bond issue for Keene Hospital um, that takes you know tens of thousands of dollars off the table because we just round it to make it simple, that tens of thousands of dollars in a paycheck for a doctor is highly material so you you have to change your perspective on what a dollar means and i that intrigued me maybe it just cuz again i grew up in a home like that but the notion of worrying about somebody's paycheck and making sure that i was helping them be successful just was a spark that it uh, really you know caught my attention and the ability to sort of drive me down even closer to the ground and work with physicians that you know were really sweating you know $5,000 or $10,000 or even $1,000 just was intriguing to me so the opportunity to go to GYN Associates was was that in spades it was a private group it lived and died on its financials and was progressive at the time and that they wanted an administrator Uh, who had the sort of business background I did. That was unusual in that vintage of time. It was mostly people who grew up in the practices who either had stayed, so they stayed long enough to run it, or they had some aptitude to make sure that the staff didn't kill each other, you know. So I'm being a little facetious, but there wasn't a whole bunch of business background that commonly came, and so um, they were progressive in that they specifically wanted that. So... It was a good match.
2: Gynecological associates was a practice of six physicians. How is managing your own practice different than being a manager in a hospital?
3: It's, it's back to the bottom line. So when we did things that uh, were successful or created success in terms of financial outcome, that was money that was then available directly to those doctors to distrib- you know, distribute to them at the end of the year or for them to reinvest in their business. It's not as clear a line when you work in a big organization like MMP or a hospital. Those dollars that you drive to your bottom line because you did something well or fate worked in your favor don't find their name and the, their way to a particular individual or name. They find their way to the you know corporate coffers of the facility to benefit all the patients in the community. So it's it's not bad, it's just different. It has a different feel.
2: You facilitated your first merger between gynecological associates and another OBGYN practice in 1995, which became Coastal Women's Health. What experience helped you lead this partnership?
3: Uh, Relationship management. So I had to take the, you know, the dogs and the cats and the various personalities in the room um, not that they, they were a group of folks who didn't get along, but they were—they had very different perspectives about how to run their businesses, and they ran them differently. So, But they had one common goal, which was that the future of medical practice was bigger, not smaller groups. Um, so leveraging that and leveraging the ability to sort of help people find common ground and um, connect themselves relationship-wise was really the... That was the strength I brought to it, the, the business side of it was almost going to happen and was relatively easy uh, with or without me, but it was more about finding personality connections that got people energized, that, hey this is a better idea than we thought it was, and it did ultimately come together. It was a very successful in the long run. So.
2: How did it come about during this time you also assisted with the formation of Maine Medical Center's Physician Hospital Organization, which is now known as Maine Medical Partners, and why do you feel you were chosen?
3: Yeah, so the, the ultimate, the Maine Medical Center PHO really went on to become, in its most current state, Maine Health ACO, where Maine Medical Partners we reserved to name the name for the medical group but. The question's still valid. The the PHO, uh, well, the predecessor to the PHO was us sitting around a table with a bunch of private practice physicians and saying, do you guys have an interest in creating an organization that will do contracting for you? Seems like a simple question because in today's world, most people would raise their hand and say, sure, we don't have the bandwidth or the talent to do it. Back then... That was not the case. Um, I don't know that bandwidth existed, but talent did in the forms of physicians who knew how to wrangle with the insurance companies, did a pretty good job of it, and could negotiate one-on-one with the insurance companies successfully, because those insurance companies were smaller and less sophisticated than they are today. So we, had, we brought a table of 20, at least 20, maybe 25 doctors together from different groups in this town, all of which were private groups, to start talking about how we would do this together and what concessions everyone would have to make for it to work well. And it was extremely challenging. We, we actually hired an attorney out of North Carolina to come help us do it because as much as we wanted to do it, we didn't even know if we were defining it accurately. It was so new in the industry. So it was a combination of my ability. I, I knew the physicians by this time. I had had exposure to a lot of them in the community, even just working at GYN Associates. And Bill Karen at that time, my prior boss from Ernst & Winnie, had gone on to be the CFO of May Medical Center and said, hey, we'll get Steve to come help us do this. So, again, it goes back to connections uh, that you make in your career that you know create new opportunities, that created a new one uh, for me. So.
2: Did your experience with the merger prepare you to assist in the creation of a PHO?
3: Not so much. I would say that it was new ground for all of us. The PHO work was so different and so... Um, without comparison in the state. No one else had done it yet, which is why we had to reach out to an attorney in North Carolina that we couldn't find anyone in the state of Maine despite the number of law firms in in greater Portland, which were considerable. Uh, No one had the experience to sit down and put one of these things together. We were crashing up against all kinds of worries that we had that the federal government would look at a bunch of doctors, private doctors sitting at a table trying to figure out how to contract together. You can imagine. Um, so there was anxiety about that. Um, so we were really trying to almost uh, interpret very loosely written laws to build this thing. And the Medical Center, by definition, and it continues today, is a very conservative organization, meaning it it tends to want to be in a very safe spot when it does things, especially new things. That's a good place to be. Um, and so we were, we, were, we were out on the edge of trying to interpret what this really meant, and uh, let alone do it well so that it survived the test of time. We don't like to start things and end them. Um, we usually try to do it right the first time if we can. So, In
1: 1995, you left Coastal Women's Health and you joined the Management Service Organization of Maine Health. What was the purpose of this new department?
3: Well, so I came, the, I was asked to come and actually start it, So, um, and I didn't know at the time what an MSO was, and so in sitting down and listening to the pitch on this, it was uh, very much about trying to meet two groups' needs, two constellation of physicians' needs. One was physicians employed at Maine Medical Center, a relatively small number, who were working in departments of Maine Med and feeling not very well attended to. Then there were groups in the community who said we need help running our business and or we want to merge together and we don't know how to do that and we think the outcome is going to be something bigger than we know how to manage. So, it was that group, that second group, that had identified MSOs as the, a potential way to solve the problem, and it was really that leverage point that created the interest by the Medical center to start one of these one of these management service organizations. So um, I came with precious little understanding of what an MSO was, but we, we actually hired a consultant to help us write a business plan and Uh, develop, you know, sort of a path to starting this thing. And that's really what ultimately turned into this medical group. But it it started as a business model, a business management company.
1: So what was your role in starting the MSO?
3: I was employee one. (laughs) So I was brought to run it, to start it and run it. Um, So start it meant work with the attorneys and consultants to literally build it, we had to go get benefits. We had to, you know, create a company from uh, scratch to find employees who would be the leadership of that organization. So I recruited them, and then to turn it on, which we did in roughly six months' time, with the physicians that were in the group at either at Maine Medical Center at the time or the interested private groups. Uh, so that was my that was my job initially.
1: Can you describe the organization as it was in 1995?
3: Yeah. We had sixty physicians, I think, roughly, about two hundred and fifty employees when we turned it on, and we really, uh, our central office, I think, was you know six people, as compared to what you roam around here in and, and uh, what exists in the CBO, etc. So, but it it focused on three big chunks of business. It focused on employing staff and charging them back to practices so we were a leasing company we filed with the state to be a main state leasing company so we could do that it focused on uh, billing and information systems for the practices so we everybody had a different system or in some cases they had no system they used paper uh, records paper billing cards and then the third thing was to manage it so we had man- the managers all reported up through you know Operations folks, and we were responsible for making sure that we managed the day to day and did their budgets and their financial statements and sort of all the stuff you'd think of as management. And we build each practice for those three pieces of business and ran it that way for ten years.
1: What was your relationship like with the physicians?
3: I was learning uh, learning about them and building trust. So. Uh, some of them I had met during the process of forming it, but for the most part, I hadn't met any of these 60 doctors. And so I was the business guy who was coming in to take advantage of them. Um, and so it took, you know, a good number of years to literally cycle through and meet folks and prove to them that our intent was good and that we were actually going to bring them to higher ground, meaning, you know, offer their staff better benefits or do a better job managing their offices. And really that my worry, my worry day to day was about their success and nothing else. So that's, I spent years doing that and creating trust.
1: What challenges arose when bringing together a group of multi-specialty practices?
3: Uh, many. So we declared victory and 2004 when we uh, sort of restructured our organization and put the physicians and the, and the management company together and dec- called ourselves a multi-specialty group and um, quite a bit of high-fiving going on in the room our, you know a lot of happy folks that we had finally reached this milestone upon reflection it was little more than day one of the how many ever days there will be journey Uh, To create the true multi-specialty group, so we had on paper reshuffled the deck and at least created a construct for people to think about being a multi-specialty group, but we hadn't done anything to actually make a multi-specialty group be that. Um, So that's that's the that has been will be the challenge, and for as long as I do this, and I suspect people behind me do this, is sort of creating the esprit de corps the the worry that a physician has about a colleague who does something completely different than he or she does, but worrying about the endpoint. That's the heaviest lifting of all. Organizations that do a good job of that, they are the stars. we got a long ways to go.
1: So what does it mean to be a multi-specialty group as opposed to a single specialty group?
3: Well, it means that we take a wide, in our case, a wide variety of specialists and primary care physicians and we glue them together or we try to glue them together in a way that makes them think about caring for a patient longitudinally. So in the past world, call it the pre-multi-specialty group practice world, which was the common world in the vast part of the country, um, patients were subject to figuring out how to navigate that themselves. So I have my primary care physician, and he or she might send me off to the cardiologist who's send me back, and then send me in another direction, and another direction, hub and spoke. Um, Wasn't even that sophisticated. Uh, Multi-specialty group, the real purpose of it, if you dig below all of the economics and benefit maybe that comes with scale, is to say we own the patient's life, we own the responsibility for their care, so we take care of all of that traffic control patients don't worry about that stuff. We worry about it for them and get them to just the right person at just the right time.
2: As you mentioned, in 2004, the organization decided to integrate all the practices as one entity, creating Maine Medical Partners. How did your role change under this new system?
3: Um, At that point, I, I moved from being the executive director, I think it was my title, of the management company to the president of the medical group. And there was some discussion at that time about, is this the right model, do we um, do we take this opportunity to find a physician to be the president of the medical group, and we'll figure out something for Steve to do. But it, we were, I think, young enough in our growth curve, and I, I'm not going to remember the exact numbers, but I think at that point in time, we might have been 100 or 120 physicians. The real growth hadn't happened yet. Um, and... I had spent ten years, you know, cultivating these relationships, so people were pretty confident with dealing with Steve. That I was the familiar face. Um, the notion of dropping somebody new into the mix, doctor or otherwise, was less appealing than leaving the non-physician in the role of president. So that became the transition for me to to the um, multi-specialty group position.
2: For the next several years, MMP actively acquired the majority of the practices it has now. Can you describe the process that MMP uses to decide whether or not to acquire or open a practice?
3: So it's changing. Um, Our initial initial process was very much reactionary, Uh, and I think this, if if folks are honest across the country, they would say that's probably how all these groups came to be, the hospital employed groups. Um, To some extent, it's preserving your market. And there was less about that for us. We didn't have competition in our marketplace for groups. We didn't have another hospital trying to buy a group that we wanted to acquire, for example. (laughs) What we did have was the risk that physicians were going to leave the community altogether. So our neurosurgeons were the first to kind of come and ask about membership in our group. Um, And the real fear at the time was, if something didn't change in their business and they didn't end up with some help supporting their practice, uh, that they were simply going to break up and go to different corners of the country. Uh, and they were very, uh, very mobile folks. And so the idea that there could be no neurosurgeons in Portland, Maine, was frightening um, to Maine Medical Center and to the patients I Maine. So that's, that was the introduction. Over the course of time, there was less and less of that and more and more of, is this a group we need in our multi-specialty group? How, how, how much do we have to worry about the services not being provided, that sort of thing? What cultural benefits exist when we bring this group in or not? How oriented are they to, to us versus you know, maintaining their, sort of, we like to be employed but we'll run our own show perspective? And there was a lot of discussions like that where we had to look people in the eye and say, we're going to tell you, it's, going to, it's different. The decisions you make today because you own it, a lot of those go away because you're part of a bigger thing and others will help you make those decisions and they might not always be the ones you'd make. Um, so we got better at having the conversation and better about prioritizing that over, oops, we better buy this group because if we don't, they're going to leave.
2: What issues were you faced with acquiring this many practices in such a short period of time?
3: We ran out of bandwidth. (laughs) We ran out of hours. There are a lot of work. It's a lot of work to bring a group on. Months and months of getting to know you meetings and uh, learning about what's important to those groups, learning about what they worry about day by day as far as their employees or their paychecks or... Services that they want to render or want to keep rendering that maybe we don't know if we want them to keep rendering in their offices, developing new programs it's a very long exhaustive process, and we were doing them in some cases we were they were overlapping, and so we were in the process of acquiring more than one group at once, and we simply didn't have enough people to do the pro formas or to be over there doing due diligence or be in enough, you know, be in enough rooms because there's many meetings that kind of spawn out of this stuff. So mostly just bandwidth. Other than that, it was fun.
1: In 2012, MMP was nearing 500 physicians and you decided it was time to also recruit a physician president. You then developed a dyad structure and took on the role of chief administrative officer. Can you explain this leadership style and why MMP chose to go with this untraditional route? Yep.
3: Um, So when we get up to, at that time, probably not quite 500, call it 400 physicians, we said, we looked at each other and said, well, we talked about this before. There was going to be some crossroad in terms of the size of the group and or its needs at that time that was going to drive us towards, that would drive us towards needing a physician leader which was the common model. You know, we would look across the country at groups of that size and certainly bigger and almost exclusively see physician presidents. So it wasn't a surprise that we were having the conversation, not to me anyway. The chief administrator role was was actually a decision that our CEO of the hospital, um, an idea he came up with, um, we were leaning in the direction of a chief operating officer, but that didn't seem to be a good fit because we wanted to take all of the business stuff, including finance and all of that, and keep it under that one person. And that was a curious fit for a COO. So uh, Rich actually came up with a title of chief administrative officer um, to try to broaden the responsibilities. And um, I told people that I didn't care what they called me as long as I got to come to work. I'd be I'd be okay. But um, so it was really Rich's uh, foresight on, you know, looking out and and talking to some of his contemporaries in big big organizations who said, well, we actually have these CAOs and this is why we have them, and um, describing that to him that created that title or that opportunity for that title.
1: So, what was it like being half of a dyad?
3: Uh, it's great. I mean, that's our, that model We permeates our organization completely. So we rely on teams of physicians and administrators to work closely together and make good decisions. What it means is that if, if you match up well, it works really well. And if you don't, it's really, really hard because you are truly kind of you're almost operating as one brain on topics which is challenging when you're, you're not in the same sort of intellectual space or perspective space as, as your colleague. I personally, I, I, we're very late to this, meaning how we didn't figure out 20, 30, 40 years ago that this was the way to do business is almost embarrassing. Um, we were trying to run giant clinical enterprises or even modest or small medical groups how did you ever think you were going to do that without having a partner that was a physician and administrator? Um, so that we got, finally got there was a good thing, but um, it's, um, it didn't take long. It didn't take long to learn how to do it. Now it's just a matter of sort of matching the right people up. It's, it's chemistry.
1: How are the responsibilities divided between you and the president?
3: Well, for the most part, anything that sort of fits in a business space, I use that word generically, but a non-clinical space sort of neatly lines under my responsibility. There are still a lot of things I do that some folks would view as clinical, quote unquote. An example might be I spend a lot of time interacting with physicians and physician leaders more from the perspective of making sure that we are doing a good job meeting their needs. And to do that, I, I nudge into clinical discussions a lot, program development, stuff like that. But for the most part, it's a, it's a clean separation around you manage the docs, I manage everybody else, and we'll come together and talk about that. In the end, the president, because it has to be, func- you know, to function properly, gets to make the final decision. So if we're not in agreement or we can't decide what the right thing to do is, I, I defer to the president, to the physician president for decision-making. So, But not too many occasions where that was necessary tended to be pretty much in lockstep.
1: In your experience, what were the pros and cons of a diet leadership?
3: Uh, pros, we get the best decisions because we have the best minds in the room representing needs of patients. Cons, it forces the organization to think very carefully about who those dyads are. It, it, it doesn't just happen because the org chart says it's a dyad. It happens when the chemistry happens, and that's hard
2: tell us a little bit about MMP and the major services it provides.
3: So we continue this many years later to the, those three buckets of work that I described we keep that's really largely what we do today difference being that we bear the responsibility ultimately for the success of the enterprise, the bottom line of the medical group, where before we were really a charge to the medical group. So I I only had to worry about doing a good job managing them, not necessarily what their budget ended up, how they ended up looking against budget. So, you know, we're very focused on our budget. We're focused on... was certainly focused on meeting needs of patients, developing new programs, helping our doctors do that, finding markets that we should be in that we aren't in, where patients need us to be. The, we continue to do an ever more so work with other main health hospital medical groups because the main health system looks at MMP as sort of the big anchor store of physician practice management. And the other hospitals that have little versions of MMP don't have the access to the people we do or the talent and forms of analysts and other folks that we are blessed to have. And so we do a lot of work in that regard, helping our colleagues in little communities manage their medical groups, or we develop collateral and we give it to them and say, hey, we, we figured out how to do this here, take this, do this, and... I, that's one of the most rewarding parts of this job. I, I love doing that. So.
2: What does the organization look like currently, and what do you hope it will look like in the future?
3: So, the organization currently is in flux, as you ladies may know, um, in that we're in between presidents. And so, our first president, first physician president, was here uh, four years or so. We've now been in an active search about to uh, move into some final round of interviews. So we're excited about that with some great candidates. I bring all this up because I think a the physician president will set a huge tone in terms of what things we worry about in the next five years. And it might be you know, highly oriented to creating a tighter culture, or it might be highly oriented to growth and outreach, or it might be both of those things. But so we're, we're a bit in that space you get into when you, and you know a new leader is coming, but you don't know who and what their bias necessarily is. But everyone's excited about that. They're excited about, you know, someone new at the wheel, and take, any of those challenges are exciting to us. We just don't, we don't know what path we get led down. So, But future, the future, I think, ultimately will be one that takes... Main medical partners and puts it, combines it with the other medical groups in our health system to create one big medical group. Much easier said than done. Mechanically, it's probably not all that challenging to do. That's a bit of an understatement, but the real challenge is, you know, if if we think culturally it's hard for MMP to figure out how to be MMP, imagine what it is when you have five or six versions of it trying to figure out how to be main health medical group, um, but I do believe that's our future. I will be uh, almost amazed if we don't end up with a single medical group, and I think we have to go there because our physicians work so closely together in all these communities. The notion that they aren't par- on the same team, I think it's in our way from time to time, so it's, it's, an, easy, it's an easy barrier to knock down. Got to figure it out.
2: What does the administrative team at MMP look like, and how is it unique from other healthcare entities?
3: Um, it probably looks very similar to most entities structurally. I don't think we're doing anything too, too wild and crazy in the org chart. Um, the, the advantage we have uh, over everyone uh, that I've ever talked to is that our folks come and stay. So the senior leaders of this organization, uh, myself and Monica and Ken and Jeff, for example, that crowd of leaders for our sort of big buckets of business collectively have over 80 years of experience just at MMP. No one else describes anywhere near that kind of uh, maturity of and, and consistency in leadership. So that's a Defining difference for us, it's part of what it's part of what propels us with the docs, because they deal with familiar faces, people they trust and know. It makes my job really easy because I'm dealing with people that I trust and know and have worked with for so many years. So that's a distinguishing feature. That's the that's the thing I would least want to give up of all things.
1: He now has many primary and specialty care practices throughout Maine. How well do you feel MMP serves the population?
3: Exceptionally well. The, um, a challenge we have is that because we want, uh, because we attach so connect, so directly to Maine Medical Center, its mission is our mission. And so we are committed to and always have take care of all patients who present to us regardless of their ability to pay. Private practices can't do that. They do it in various ways but or not but they they don't have the unending ability to simply absorb the cost of a patient at some point they have to shut that access off. So with that it, challenge comes you know great reward in the form of knowing that we're reaching you know as deep as can be reached into this community taking care of people who really need our help and can't find it anywhere else. We also have, certainly the largest group of specialists in the state. And so across our group, we're often the only ones of those in the state. And that has a, a certain responsibility attached to it. So we have to learn how to worry about our environment and our organization. At the, t- at the same time, we have to worry about all the communities in Maine, because that's the only t- way those patients can, can find access to Pediatric specialists, for example, we, we've got them all, and so, or certainly the vast number of them. So, that I, I'd say we're because we view the world through that lens, it unburdens a physician with worrying about things like what insurance somebody has, and it lets them focus exclusively on the patient in front of them. Period. I think that's a great endpoint.
2: The average age in Maine is more than six years older than the U.S. average. How does this affect the organization as a whole?
3: Um, It hasn't yet, but we talk about it a lot. So that's my editorial on we haven't figured out how yet to get in front of what is a very gray state and worry about things like geriatrics uh, and some of the specialty services that are just very focused on caring for aging patients or aging population. We have those programs. I just feel like we haven't placed them properly relative to the comment, you, the question you just asked. So we all know, because we look at the data and have looked at it for 20 years, that there is a tsunami of. Of gray-haired patients who is going to hit us and it's not that far away and they have needs and those needs look like some of the things we do but they look like a lot of things we don't do um, and figuring out how to get ahead of that and how to be proactive especially in in geriatrics which is a very broad area of medical practice I think is our biggest challenge right now folks are trying to figure out how to balance making money so we can keep the lights on with worrying about the future and those don't go together well because our friends in Washington and the Medicare program are not aimed at wanting to pay us more money they're aimed at wanting to pay us less so that's a challenge.
2: How has the implementation of the ACA affected MMP?
3: It has helped politics aside by by creating ways for patients to have insurance or obtain it, that helped us have greater access, greater compliance because patients had the confidence they could come for their appointments. Helped get us paid at least some amount of money where before that money turned in, those bills turned into bad debt because folks didn't have any money to pay their bills, and so it, it, net gain overall kind of behind it, you know, there's varying opinions on what worked and didn't work, but on the surface, that worked well.
2: There's a large number of Medicare and Medicaid patients. How did Maine's decision not to expand these programs impact MMP?
3: Um, it impacted us because we, we count that group of people, especially the Maine care population, as the sort of forgotten group. The ACA took care of a certain group of people. The Medicare program picks up a bunch of folks when they hit that age, but there's this gap in the middle that is a whole bunch of folks who don't have the income to even find their way to an ACA option or choose not to because they have psychosocial problems that just prevent them from thinking that through, if you will. And that Medicaid gap is is a big number, and, and it, we would watch... We would actually watch the numbers change when we knew that a certain tens of thousands or thousands of patients were going to move into eligibility of main care. We could watch that debt go down, and we would see it actually happen. So we knew that it worked. We knew it worked when you took a patient and made them eligible for main care. They started to seek services, and we started to have a way to interact with that patient, get paid, and... Le- not leave them with, a, you know, a horrible, you know, financial challenge.
2: What would you say are the skills, competencies, and abilities necessary to become the CAO of a large organization like MMP?
3: Good listener. Transparent. Respect. Understand the financials. It's always important. You can't. I would argue you can't be successful regardless of the enterprise and regardless of the track you're in if you don't really understand the finances of the business you're in. If it's long-term care, no long-term care finance. Not because anyone's going to ever ask you to build a spreadsheet, but because you in that role exist because that works. So I just think that's vitally important. But I I, I think it's, it's relationships, be a collaborator. Collaborate all the time, even when it hurts. Collaborate.
1: So let's talk about leadership. What is your leadership philosophy?
3: Um, Listen, appreciate, balance. You have to have balance in your life. A lot of people don't. I, I come here and I genuinely care about what the people who work for me do. I care about them as people. I worry about them when they have bad things happen in their life. I go visit them. I probably don't have time to do that, but I do it. And I don't do it because I need somebody to say something nice about me. It's because they have given the better part of their they give the better part of their life day by day to come and do something for us that's important. And things happen to people and if you If you only worry about this piece of it and not this piece of it, you're out of balance. So to me, there's just balance. You know, collaborating is just, I can't say that enough. I, I, I just think that's the world we live in. That's the healthcare world we live in. We're forced to have different kinds of relationships. Call it dyad. Call it whatever you want. It's all collaboration. It's working closely with people who do things different, do different things than you do. But you both contribute to a good end. So, um, so that's, that's mostly what I think about when I think about why I lead things, what matters to me.
1: What are the characteristics and behaviors of a good leader and how do you aspire to those yourself?
3: I always listen first. Did I say listen enough times? Um, I start every single thing I do listening. And I, I quite frankly judge people who don't do that or at least I quickly form opinions on how hard it's going to be for me to collaborate with them. <laughs> but it, it's just a message you send when you're willing to let somebody describe their perspective or why they're here to see you or you know, listening is how you learn. There's no other way to learn. And I think doing that has first of all taught me a lot, but second of all it it kind of quickly gets me to respect because people appreciate the fact that they could tell their tale or make their case and so it's a simple it's a simple thing to do sometimes it's you know not what you want to hear but it's a simple thing to physically do sit and listen to someone and i think it just starts our relationship on a good on a good foot so
1: who did you learn your leadership philosophy from
3: my father he was a good listener very good listener and uh most most everyone that I've tended to pay close attention to and or hold out as someone I would emulate uh, has the ability to do that. It, you know they tend to have that characteristic now that's probably because it's my bias i I line up with them but uh, you know I can i I pay attention to leaders that are influential and have done a good job in their careers and that's a not an uncommon feature. So, I've, but mostly my father.
2: Give us an example of a difficult leadership lesson you had to learn the hard way.
3: Uh, I learned that when you try to um, when you try to do the right, what you believe is the right thing, in the form of protecting somebody from a change. The odds are pretty good it's going to bite you in the long run because you can't stop a change. So an example would be um, when we made some big changes in the organization and moved people from employment and MMP as a true employer to put them all into Main Medical Center because we wanted to consolidate benefits in HR. There were some differences, and so I was fierce about wanting to protect the differences for the staff. Things like uh, paid time off, the amount of accrual, or the fact that they didn't pay for parking, for example. In MMP, didn't require that an employee pay for parking, but in Maine Medical Center, they pay for parking, regardless where they park. So I was successful, quote, unquote, in having those things not, you know, carry over as as differences, which was fine, except that when all the new people came, they looked like everyone else in Maine Medical Center and didn't have that enjoyment of different PTO or not paying for parking, which then creates an inequity in your organization that, you know, no good deed goes unpunished. And so um, things like that, you know, equity is it's just super difficult to manage to but um, you have to it taught me to stop and think about future state a little better and not worry so much about the in the minute you know protection of my staff because that was a good example where i actually did some harm in the long run so
2: what do you look for when choosing leaders
3: well i look for people with uh, that i believe have a uh, a complete orientation to team, aren't particularly motivated by their you know personal aspirations or even necessarily their career path, though you really want that. Ultimately, I don't want that to be the driving force. Big surprise, I like people who appear to have good listening skills. And other than that, I sort of look for personality traits. That's just me, and you know, features that I know match up with well with my style. Um, but that's that's more me and not management one one. That's just me trying to stack a deck with folks that I know connect well. But but definitely those other things are really important to me. Team is important. We too many opportunities for wildcats to go running off making names for themselves and all of a sudden we're in 10 different directions and we don't have time for 10 directions. So.
2: What about when evaluating leaders?
3: I'm terrible at that. So that's my—that's one of my weak spots is, is performance evaluations. I'm just simply not good at it. But I'm looking for those things. So I'm looking for the evidence that in the goals that that person accomplished which presumably align with MMP's goals how do, how good a job did they do bringing our team together how did they you know what resources did they draw in to do their work we have a lot of overachievers here it's a good thing and a bad thing but we have folks who will simply pick up work and do it and they'll do it and do it and do it and that's great until the bus comes by and picks them off or the train hits them. It doesn't leave you with an organization that knows how to do the work. And so I'm, I'm all about making sure that there's a group of people who really problem-solve. We problem-solve as a group a lot, maybe more than we should. But I know that in the absence of any one of us, folks can pick up and keep going. And I think that's as important for any organization to worry about.
2: What are the most common mistakes of junior leaders?
3: Uh, racing to the end, to the conclusion. <laughs> so, and it, and it's almost unfair to say it because you you got to live through that experience to learn it. But um, I think I think any junior leader is just doesn't have the benefit of getting their knees skinned or you know making a decision that they got to reflect on as probably not being a good one. So. Um, so that the mistakes get made is part of the process. I guess. I, I guess ultimately, it's those folks who take those and turn them into new, new action. You know, better ways of doing business, if you will. Those are the successful folks. The ones who sort of rinse, repeat their way through a, a you know, skill or, or a style. Um, that's rate limiting. I think those. Those folks will always find homes in the organization, but they'll tend to bounce around. They won't embed in a team.
1: What is organizational culture and why is it important?
3: Yeah, it's vitally important. So it's the thing we most have to work on with our new president, I'm um, hoping that our new president comes and sticks to that, like whatever the strongest adhesive there is in the world, because it's, it's the place where we're, it's our weak spot. We have, I think, a strong culture within the administrative ranks. Um, so I can speak more directly to that. That is one that we prop each other up. So it's if you want to call it team, or I've got your back, call it what you want. But this this administrative organization works extremely well together. And I, I have zero zero folks in my office talking to me about some worry about a coworker in this administrative office. Never happens. Never happens. That's unheard of. And it's just because culturally we work together very tightly and the common goal is the common goal. And so uh, it's taken a long time to find people who think like that, but that's what this, this organization is.
1: So how do successful leaders shape organizational culture?
3: live it it's just how you, it's how you are as a human I, I am often critical about things that are flavor of the month meaning you know values or you know and it's not that they aren't bad things to worry about they're the great things to worry about but they don't install as quickly as organizations want them to install here are our new values you know they're on a piece of paper, and you know we keep sticking them in front of you, and eventually you'll you'll stick to them. Um, it takes way longer than that, and it, and I believe personally, I believe it's it's how you come to the job you're in, it's how you were brought up, it's how you live your life, it's what you do when you go home. It looks no different at home than it does at work. Those are the things that are important to you. So to me, that's that's what that stuff's about. So. No. Um, but I recognize that organizations need to package it. And so the, for us, the colored circles with the values is our packaging of that. But it's how people live their lives.
1: If you had to pick one book that early careerists who aspire to be a senior leader should read, what would it be?
3: I would, um, I don't know if I can get to a book, but I can get to an author. I think in current times... Atul Gawande is probably the most influential healthcare leader we have right now, and and having lived through cycles of folks who got described as that, who were not physicians, by the way, um, he he's so far out in front of those folks it isn't funny, and has a I think a very good way of taking this stuff down to a common denominator. It's he, f- he has found all the basic problem, uh, basic problems in the health industry. Not not meaning there are easy answers, but he's found them for us. And so, I, I, anything he writes, short or long, I, I read it, and always get something out of it. I, I just think he's a, a man for this for our times right now and change.
1: What advice do you have to early careers to aspire to lead a healthcare organization, perhaps a system like MMP?
3: Be a good listener. <laughs> um, yeah, I would say um, be prepared to work hard. It's hard work. I you know I worry a lot about folks like you guys because I I see how hard it is now compared to when I started. What I thought was hard work then, or or I should say what I thought was challenge then, is nothing compared to today. So the things we worried about. 25 years ago as being the new rules at Medicare that were coming out that we had to figure out how to adapt to, I, absolutely nothing compared to the challenges of today, So, which I can only imagine then become you know, even greater challenges of tomorrow. So it's hard work. It's really hard work. So figuring out how to step into it and knowing it's going to be a challenging industry, we you guys have watched we work hard around here you know the hours are long part of that is because our physician our role with physician forces some funny hours Uh, physicians like early so we adapt to that Um, so it just comes with the territory but now here's the other side of it do all that and figure out how to balance your your life and figure out how to have a family and figure out how to do those other important things because you can't you can't have one or the other. In my mind, you can't have one or the other. Lots of people try. <laughs> um, it's a recipe for disaster. So um, that, that to me is, that's a, that's a huge challenge for you guys because this is, this is really heavy lifting. Um, but you gotta figure out how to have a life too. That's, I have that conversation every day with people around here, trying to make sure that they have a life too. Thank you. Thank you. This was fun. Appreciate all the questions.
0: You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts, on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again in about two weeks.